0: Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple that you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is Seth Wong, CEO of the PGA of America. Now, Seth was a finance guy who came up through the ranks to become the CEO of Deutsche Bank. Now, that's obviously impressive, but knowing Seth as I do and knowing his track record, what really stands out to me is his unique ability to relate to people at every level of an organization. You know, that's exactly what he did when he took over at the PGA of America. He went out, he talked to his professionals, he listened, he learned, and he gave his team members a chance to let him know what they thought needed to be done before he made any of the decisions that he needed to make to move the business forward. And I'll be honest with you, he uncovered some tough issues when he spent that time with the front lines, but he was also able to see for himself just exactly what needed to be done and get the input from his people on how to get it done, and in so doing, inspire them to help it get done. Now Seth is building a team around a culture of happiness. And they're really digging into their big mission, which is to grow the game of golf and make it more inclusive and accessible. And man, oh man, is that mission important. And that's what I want you to learn today. Great leaders are not only not afraid to spend time with all levels of their organization, they can't wait to spend time with all levels of their organization because they learn so much that will help them take the organization to the next level. And isn't that what you wanna do with your team? So let's get right to it. Here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Seth Waugh. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us and let's tee it off. Couldn't resist that one, Seth.
1: <laughs> well, I'd, uh, I'd do anything to be with you, David, even being <laughs> on a podcast. No, but thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm glad to be asked and uh, it's great to be with you, my friend, as always.
0: Great, great. You know, Seth, tell our listeners a little bit about the PGA of America and how it's different from the PGA Tour. It can get confusing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's fair enough. The Look, like if we were start if you were going to start out and like create the world of golf right now, it would not look anything like what it does, right? It's it, we've got a uh, kind of alphabet soup of different organizations. You've got the USGA, the European Tour, the PGA of America, the uh, the PGA Tour, um, but it all works. And so our role in this thing is we have um, the, we're the largest sports organization on the planet. We have twenty nine thousand members. So in that sense, we're sort of a Uh, a trade association for all the PGA professionals out there that are teaching everybody to play the game and run the clubs. Uh, And our mission is to uh, serve the member and and grow the game. So we're a non-for-profit, and and that's uh, why we get up in the morning every day. Uh, In addition to that, we play, you know, we own two of the um, Major events: uh, two of the five real waterfront properties on the uh, men's uh, tour. Uh, we have the PGA Championship, which is uh, a major, uh, and uh, then we have the Ryder Cup, which is you know one of the great events in golf uh, and in sports. In fact, we also have the the Women's PGA Championship, a senior uh, championship, and then of course our National Club Pro. So we we play at the very highest levels among every level. We we have junior events. Uh, we run the PGA Junior League. We um, have a, a foundation that, uh, that supports veterans and diversity and inclusion and, uh, and junior golf and, and uh, a place to play, which is municipal golf. So we kind of, you know, most of the other organizations in golf uh, kind of have one lane in the swimming pool. We kind of have the whole pool, David, and we started from the first uh, swing you take until hopefully the last.
0: <laughs> they've you've definitely they've definitely got the right guy for the job here with you, and and Seth, you go from being one of the, the the top financial executives in the world to take on the CEO role of the PGA of America. You know why'd you do it?
1: Well, that's uh, that's what my wife Jane asks me every day, but. Uh. <laughs> You know the you know, like how many chances does anybody get to kind of reinvent themselves um, at any point in their life, and particularly you know at this point in my life. So, for me, it's an incredible honor, and and um, and I'm just flattered to be asked. Frankly, I I remember a conversation I had with a, a good friend of both of ours, uh, Peter Ubroth, who's had an amazing life, and he was kind of one of my uh, mentors, uh, even though he probably didn't know it. I'd try to go out and have lunch with him once a year or so, and just talk to him. and And I asked him how he'd done his various things, which was, you know, he was commissioner of baseball. He he did the Olympics, the first profitable one. He bought Pebble Beach back from uh, the Japanese, um, you know, a number of things. And and he said, you know, uh, I like to think about where I can have the most impact. And that struck me as really interesting and something that I've thought about ever since then. And so look, I I think golf is a very worthy thing. I think it's this incredible engine for good in terms of building relationships, lessons learned, beautiful places you go to see. you know you like me, I know david have golf is interwoven in everything in our lives um and it's where I've gotten the most relationships, certainly you know out of my adult life and so to have a chance to have an impact on something that I think is worthy um and and will give the the biggest chance that I'll ever have to to impact the most amount of lives if i can kind of make we can make twenty nine thousand lives better i think we can make millions of lives better by extension and so it was a hard decision in a lot of ways i was a partner at silver lake which is a wonderful uh private equity uh firm was great friends and so leaving it was a hard thing to do but um but the the chance to have that impact is really what what drove my decision
0: seth when you think about it what would be the the Top three leadership learnings that you you had coming up in finance that you're bringing as the CEO of the PGA of America.
1: That's a great question. I, like I, I think um, if I think about great companies um, or great institutions, uh, I think they share a few things. One is culture, and I know that was a huge part of your experience and what you were so famous for it yum so creating a culture one that has a team and and you know people are your only assets so creating that culture is is you know hugely important I don't, I don't think you can do anything else without that it's the only lasting thing that keeps companies together you're going to have good quarters bad quarters good years good decades but the culture is what kind of keeps everybody there i think the second thing you have to have is kind of a product that people want to buy right and uh, whether that's you know chicken or or tacos or or you know uh, great lessons from our pros, or Ryder Cup that you know everyone wants to watch. You know you have to have that as part of it, and then I think you need to take your people and and kind of create a common dream. You know you, you everybody buys into that dream and that you have a mission. It's not just. Um, you know, about your own, um, whatever part of that process you're doing, it's where you're going as an institution and, and creating that feeling that you're part of something special that's going somewhere, I think is, is again, that, that, that's interwoven to the culture. Um, and I think you do all that and that's how you create a brand. And, and once you have that brand, that's the most valuable asset you have. And you have to hold on to that, um, you know, in every way that you can protect it, but also grow it and evolve it.
0: You know, Seth, so you, you take on this new role, and how did you go about really learning what your priorities needed to be?
1: You know, I think one of the things in, uh, that you do when you come into anything new is, is you want to certainly understand the numbers, but I think the best way to do any of these jobs, I, I sort of have this view that um, running a, any business is like running a restaurant. You need to kind of be out in front. You need to know what your customers are ordering. You need to know what's coming out of the kitchen. You need to know who's on the cash register. And so, even you know, when I was at Deutsche Bank, I would always try to um, be with clients. I try to spend 50% of my time with clients because first of all, that was kind of what we did. And that was hopefully adding value, making money. But secondly, I got a chance to understand what was going on in the markets, what was going on in my customers' heads, you know, my clients' heads, my partners' heads. Uh, I got to watch my people um, do what they do day to day and that was the way that i kind of understood you know my business and so when i think you come into anything new that's the best way to do you come in with you know no preconceptions uh listen a lot more than you talk because that's how you you know you're going to learn um, you got to assume kind of best intentions from everybody give everybody a chance to show what they can do i i'm not a big believer that you got to clean out house and start all over i think you you know there's a reason people are there there's a reason there's that brand and you want to give them that chance um and then i think the other thing that and i used to think about this every time we hired a new senior person at at Deutsche Bank, I'd say, you know, look, you've got a six-month window where you're kind of the new kid in town, right? And what, um, ask all the hard questions. Think about it in a different way. Don't do things because that's the way we've always done them. And six months into that, or maybe it's a year, um, all of a sudden you're part of that process. You kind of own it. And so be that new kid. Ask all those questions, um, the hard ones, um, and the ones that are, you know, kind of confusing to you. You have that window to, to learn, right?
0: Right. And speaking of learning, what was the most surprising thing you uncovered as you looked at the the business and that's really driving what you're focused on today? The thing that was
1: most surprising and disappointing to me was um, that there was a sense of, uh, I think, a lack of communication and a lack of trust between the headquarters of of PJ America and our 29,000 members. Here we are trying to serve them. Um, and make their lives better and and grow the game. And there was a a general uh, feeling that headquarters hadn't done enough for them, hadn't communicated enough. And so we're leading with that. We're trying to work really hard to recreate um, a lot of that, and I think because of that lack of trust, there was a bit of an atrophy in the in the organization. One that um, was kind of protecting the past as opposed to looking to the future, and there was a sense of kind of zero risk because there wasn't a reward. And you can't go anywhere if you don't take any risk. Like that's that's sort of how it all works. And so um, I've tried to create a sense of uh, innovation, a sense of you know, it's okay to make mistakes. We're going to learn from them and, and go forward. But most importantly, really trying to live our mission. I would not have taken this job to preside over Ryder Cups. So that, that's what we do once every two years. What, what we do you know, every day is grow the game and serve the member. And so I wanted to make sure that um, we lived that every day. And certainly the members understood that that's why I took the job. And that's how I was going to lead.
0: I want to get to the membership in just a second, but you brought up the Ryder Cup, and there's a lot of discussion about whether the Ryder Cup should be played with or without fans. Uh, How will you go about making that decision?
1: David, I, when I got out of the banking business, I thought I was getting out of the crisis business, but all of a sudden I was right back in the middle of it with COVID, right? And uh, and sports are among the things that are, are most affected. And so I think when you're making any hard decision, you got to kind of think about what is the whole? Like, wh- how how is the, the whole going to do the best here? You have all these stakeholders, you have partners, you have the game, you have... Um, You know, obviously the the health risks associated with everything. And so as we went through the thinking around this and and we look at our PGA championship, we believe that the best interest of the game is for us to play that without fans. And and in a way that creates content and creates opportunity and jobs, not only for the players, but for everyone around the game, for the media, for everything else, you're creating commerce. And so obviously we'd much prefer to do it with fans, but that that made sense every Events and certainly every major is going to be better with fans, but you can kind of imagine it without the Ryder Cup is a very different animal. It is one that is really all about the fans. That's what makes the event. Um, If you haven't been to one, you should. I know you have, David. Uh, It is one of the, you know, the first shot on the first day is one of those moments in sports, if you're a fan, that you you have to experience. Um, You can't believe the the tension and how amazing it is. It's this tribal kind of uh, deal, right? And, And thinking about a Ryder Cup without fans is really hard to get your head around. And that's how, we kind of framed our decision and then could you do it with less fans? Could you do it in some other form? You start thinking about, and this is meant to be, obviously it's a home game for us, but we hope to have, you know, 25% of the fans be European and being for the other team, because that's, again, that back and forth is what makes it so special. And so, if you think about you know, coming to watch three days of golf for for a European fan, you'd have to quarantine for 14 days on the front end and 14 days on the back end. So it's going to cost you 31 days to to you know watch three days of
0: golf. I
1: don't know that that works, right? <laughs> no. So. And what are the odds that you can do, you know, a 10,000-person event as opposed to 40,000? And and the last thing I'd say is, you know, I've talked to everybody in Wisconsin about it uh, and everybody I could think of. You know, one of them was the the Green Bay Packers, who obviously are right there. And I said, well, what are you doing for the fall? And they said, well, we're hoping to play. We're going to start with 25% and maybe get to 50% and we'll see how it all goes. And I said, well, that's great. And he said, well, you know, why can't you just do that? And I said, well, the, the difference between me and you is... I got to build Lambo between June and September. And that is, that's an expensive proposition, right? And so you build it and, and then cancel it. And that's uh, you know, not, not a, great, uh, uh, a great outcome.
0: Yeah. Well, certainly a big challenge to think through. And you're doing a great job doing it. You, you brought up the impact of COVID 19 and the crisis that it's created. Hey, what kind of impact has COVID 19 had on the typical PGA professional?
1: Well, you know, it's, there's, the TJ professional comp takes a lot of forms, right? Um, you know, we have uh, ones that are teachers and coaches. We have ones that are general managers, others that, you know, are in operations. And so each one's a little bit different, you know, and, and our perspective on when this started was how do we, you know, how do we get the, everybody to the other side of this thing, right? Um, first of all, you you survive and it's sort of like that, you know, when you're on a plane and they say if the oxygen comes down, put it on yourself first and then and then save your kids. I, I know you couldn't do that and I couldn't do that, but it's good advice. And so, um, you know, we wanted to make sure that we understood, you know, kind of where we were and then try to figure out how to get everybody else there. And um, so at first it was our... Professionals are either small business owners or are part of a small business, generally speaking, or entrepreneurs, you know, coaches that are relying just on lessons for their livelihood. And so trying to keep the game open in a safe and responsible way was kind of our first thing. And we're not health experts, so we weren't trying to give advice on that front. But if a state or a locality wanted to um, play golf or have golf as a healthy distraction and, you know, release for a lot of people that we would give them the best advice. And so we created a um, a back to golf program, which we actually took to the CDC um, in a proactive way. They were very appreciative that we were thinking about it that way and then rolled it out, you know, through the industry. So trying to keep places open or open them responsibly once they were closed. And so that, depending on where you were, you were either out of business for a period of time or, or maybe you stayed open the whole time, but in a lesser way. And then as things have reopened, um, we've added a different thing. So if you were a coach, the first form of golf was a walk in the park. You and I could carry our own bag and walk in you know, a onceum or a two some in an empty golf course. Like that's pretty safe. And then added carts and other things and eventually teaching. But at first it, you know teaching wasn't viewed as essential. Obviously it's essential to the person who's making a living doing it. So figuring out social distancing, wearing masks, other ways to kind of get that done. So when you say a typical PGA professional, they're all affected as everybody in, you know, in, the, in the world has been. Ours were affected a lot early. Um, we're lucky enough to be able to bring it back sooner than lots of other businesses in a lesser form. And then the good news is that golf has had an incredible boom because of this. You know, we're seeing uh, numbers up across the board everywhere. This is back to sort of the tiger days of of participation. T-sheets are blown up. uh, And it's, you know, that part of it is we're trying to figure out how to make that a generational change as opposed to something that's just in the moment. And by the way, we're seeing a totally different kind of player come back. It's families. It's it's uh, become a really welcoming place. So there's a lot of uh, diversity in who's coming back, not just traditional players, but lapsed players and, and first-timers and, uh, and again, families and people from every uh, every walk of life.
0: I tell you, I have seen that here, you know, and I'm, I'm in Louisville right now. And I have to tell you, you, you know, the tee sheets are jam-packed and there's more people in the parking lots than ever before. So it's definitely having an impact on the game one of the things that you know I know about you Seth is that uh, you are an absolute high touch leader and here we are we're doing this podcast through our zoom call here and you know we're living in a virtual world today so how is that changing you personally as a leader
1: I think it's it's a little bit of good news bad news um, uh, uh, you know David I think you're you're able to touch more people and obviously you know you're doing all this great work out of kindness to your heart to make people's lives better and talk about leadership. And that's a vehicle that didn't exist, right? Nor did social media and a lot of other things. So I think the ability to, to communicate across a mass way is is amazingly powerful and great, as long as it's used, you know, for good rather than evil, if you will. And, and I'm not going to define those, but I think we know what you mean. And I think the other thing as a public figure, you know, you have to be more careful. Right, you have to be really thoughtful about everything you say. Nothing is casual anymore because, um, you know, we, everything's going to get parsed. Everything you say has an afterlife um, and will show back up, and it'll show up perhaps out of context or in a different context or the world's going to change and suddenly that something that looks smart five years ago may look ridiculous or, or insensitive or a lot of other things, right? And so it's making us all be really thoughtful about almost our legacy, if you will, because you're, you're almost making it every day, right?
0: Earlier on, you talked about the importance of creating a shared dream. It, it, what's the what's the dream you have for the PGA of America and and the the members the dream
1: is in a simple way is to make their lives better right and so you know we wake up in the morning trying to do that and the, the ways to make it better are varied but many so i want to elevate the profession back to what it probably was in the old days when i think PGA professional was kind of one of those people in town that had an exalted position, that they had some secret sauce that knew how to hit a seven iron that you didn't, whether that would be the doctor or the lawyer or the principal of the school or the high school football coach. And I think that's gotten lost a little bit. And so getting that back as a sense of community, I think is important. And, and on the actual, what we can do directly, we're working very hard on a deferred compensation plan, which will create, you know, a real wealth creation vehicle for PJ professionals. It's long overdue. I'm really hopeful on that front. Um, we have some ideas around healthcare, which is not Universally supplied to PGA professionals. And that's a huge thing that I think we can do for them. And then I think, you know, it's about communicating, creating a pride in an organization. COVID allowed, trisies are obviously really hard. On the other hand, you get a chance to show um, your constituents that you. You know this is the time when they need you most and when you should be there for their most and and I hope that that 's kind of what we 've you know conveyed and 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 done uh, not just talked about but actually done we 've created a emergency relief fund which was donated about 10 million to to those in need again to get people to the other side and a variety of other things so making their lives better was really what it's about and the reason we care so much about our waterfront properties if you will is that that's the engine uh, economic engine that that allows us to to do all this stuff day to day and you know and then it's the game right like how do we make the game um, you know, more relevant going forward rather than
0: less. I wanted to ask you about that because you know, when when most people think of the PGA and golf, they think of tradition and preserving the past. What role does innovation play in 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 the go forward for the PGA of America?
1: Yeah. Well, look, I, I think I think it has a huge role. I think it's absolutely you know, the biggest change that, you know, we need to affect. Um, I think you have to respect the the past for sure, celebrate the history, all the wonderful things that golf's about. But if, you know, as you know, if disruption's happening everywhere and you either have to be part of the disruption or get run over and So we need to evolve or, or be come last relevant as as a game right there's there's headwinds uh, you know that have been talked about which is too time consuming too complicated not welcoming enough too expensive you know all those sort of things which we need to to break down and and i have this view that two aspects of it is we've been an association that's protected kind of our grandparents game as opposed to creating the one for our grandchildren Right, and I also think that, and particularly true in the last couple of months, um, been hugely reminded of this. That if we can make the game look more like the world, uh, maybe the world can look a little bit more like the game, and all those beautiful things about what we are. So, making it welcome, making it look different, and so green shoots that I'd talk about, and you know, relative to our own businesses, junior league. Golf, which is, a you know, you, you may not know it because your kids are grown up, but it's, it's kind of the Little League of, of golf. Um, it's two-person scramble. It's 8-year-old to 14-years-old, uh, You know boys playing with girls, 8-year-olds playing with 14-year-olds. Uh, you have a uniform. Uh, you play in a team in a league. Um, the two biggest cohorts of growth are girls and kids of color and so really hopeful on that it's it's the coolest thing going on i think in, in golf and then another one is you know top golf right which the naysayers would say it's not golf and it's a threat I look at it exactly opposite way. What what can we learn from Top Golf? Why is it so successful? Why are they growing 30% a year? Um, and um, and how can we make it a gateway to green grass golf, which is where it is? And so we look at them as a the great partner. They now have PGA professionals in virtually every one of their stores. It's less time consuming. It's it's digestible. Um, it's you know simple. And, and those are the things we got to make it fun. We got to make golf cool, right? And uh, and that's that's what I think we need to do to, to truly grow the game. And I think we have that opportunity post-COVID um, with this growth spurt.
0: Great vision for the game. Love it. And I want to talk a little bit about your your style as a leader. And Seth, you're – I mean, anybody that knows you knows you're an absolute great guy, one of the nicest guys in the world. When's the tough guy come out? <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, as one of my friends once said, you're like a really nice guy until you're not. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, for me, it's bad behavior. Uh, and it sounds, you know, cliche. But if I go into every deal trying to make sure that both parties feel good about it. And I think those are the best deals. I think, you know, we don't have clients, we have partners, and I want to treat them that way. And if somebody gets off the reservation and isn't fair, treats somebody badly, doesn't, you know, have the values that, that I espouse, um, that's when I get tough. And for me, we can agree to disagree. We can um, talk about it. I'm a very, I think, consensual kind of leader in terms of you know, building a consensus, but you know my golden rule in leadership has been you know no jerks allowed and as soon as somebody is a jerk that's when the other stuff comes out
0: <laughs> well that makes a lot of sense you talked earlier about culture being the the most important driver of any business how do you gauge whether a culture or a work environment is is really right
1: i think you've got to you've got to again back to what i talked about earlier which is is how do you um, are you going somewhere um, are people you know following uh, are we a team um, are people happy you know are people having fun are they being creative do they want to recruit their friends to come play on your team um, are we good partners to our clients and so when you say like how do you gauge I think it's back to my style which is to you know, kind of get my uniform dirty and be in the middle of things. Like not because I don't distrust people, I want to empower people, but I also want to understand kind of what's going on from, from all of our stakeholders. I want to know, you know, what our members are thinking about us. And if you know, I, I I can kind of wait for the good news, but the bad news, I kind of want to know right away because I want to be able to do something about that. I want to know if our clients or, you know, or really our partners are viewing us as being a great partner. I want to know if our employees are, are happy. Are they fulfilled?
0: That happy factor seems to be a pretty big, important thing to you.
1: Well, I think it's, you know, what, what else is the point of life, right? <laughs> but I, I just think if you, if you're happy, you're so much better, whatever you're doing. Um, yeah. you know, and it's true in golf and it's true in life and it's true in work.
0: Well, you know, unfortunately, these really aren't that happy at times. In addition to COVID nineteen, there's there's so much racial tension today. How are you driving change and diversity in in your own organization?
1: Yeah, well, I, you know, look, my perspective on that is um, that I think this is an amazing opportunity. Um, And as you know, I tend to be half full, right? I I grew up in a house that was very progressive. Um, My parents just. It were that way, and so I, I've always been frustrated by the lack of my ability, frankly, at, at Deutsche Bank or on Wall Street to uh, to make more of a difference on this front. And if I think about great frustrations in my my job, my career, it would be that despite a lot of efforts, the needle hasn't moved. And so, I, as horrible, uh, uh, you know, a reason for this all to happen, finally, I think the Great Awakening and the one that i uh you know hoped was a Rodney King moment um and it, and it obviously didn't happen and you know we're we're a country that was built on you know equality and we 're two hundred and fifty years into the experiment and and we're failing right and I used to think that you know that sort of enlightened view was to be color blind i I think that's absolutely wrong now. I think you have to be totally color aware I think we have to be intentional in that um and I think we have to first listen acknowledge um help with the healing and then we have to just create an action plan and so that's what we're doing we we have you know, I inherited it. I don't take any credit for it. We've, um, When I came on our head of diversity and inclusion, one woman named Sandy Cross is terrific. I, I made her our head of people. And because I didn't understand why diversity and inclusion was out of HR. And so I kind of reversed the model. And she's made an enormous difference over her five years in the role. And, and we can't be proud of our history as a country. We certainly can't be proud of a lot of things that have gone on in golf and and frankly at the PGA of America. So we can apologize for those, but all we can do is, is kind of make it better. And so I think those are programmatic things. The table has to be seated with different points of view. That's the whole point of diversity. And we all have to be in it together. I'm really encouraged by the fact that it's a national conversation. It's a lot of white leaders talking about this issue for the first time you know, ever, I think. And it's going to come from, in this case, I think commerce and business rather than politics, if you will. And I think that's also a really healthy thing. And so we all have to move the needle in our own respective areas and and then collectively the needle will be moved.
0: You know, Seth, you've had so much success as a leader. Uh, Almost every leader I talk to has a a failure or, or an epic fail, you know, but they learn a lot from it. Uh, what would be yours?
1: You know, I, I was running, um, I was at Merrill Lynch in the late 90s running kind of the biggest PL at the bank, uh, co-running it with another fellow. And uh, the Russian debt crisis hit, which at the time felt like a really bad one. And <laughs> it seems like a paper cut now. <laughs> you know, we were building our business and had, you know, the, the most, uh, the hurricane hit and we had the most hotels on the beach, right? And so we got we got hurt. Uh, very badly, and um, from that I learned to, you know, empower people, trust people, but also take the keys away when it needed to be. When people were in trouble, um, you know, you needed to to sort of be supportive, but but take them away. I think I was a little bit too uh, trusting's the wrong word, but I, I allowed um, others to shape our destiny as opposed to seizing the tiller uh, a little bit more quickly and really driving what we are doing again in a collaborative way, but driving it. And I think from that, I've now lived through nine 11 and I've lived through uh, the financial crisis and lived through uh, COVID now, hopefully lived through COVID. So I've been a a much more proactive leader than I, than I was then.
0: Seth, I want to take you back to the very beginning for a while here. Tell us a story about your childhood days that will tell us a lot about the kind of person that you've become.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's a good one. Um, you know, like like a lot of people, uh, a lot of you know, a lot of people. My father was a huge influence in my life and my hero, and he coached me in um, I think eight different teams. I was a captain on his team. I took every class that he taught that I could, so I, I had him in class, um, you know, six or seven times. And early on, I was a pretty good baseball player, and I was really more of a shortstop than a pitcher, but I was pitching. And I just learned a little nickel curve, and I was probably 12 or 14 years old. And I was having a good night on the mound, and I, I struck out a bunch of people, and my curve was making them look goofy. They weren't a great team. And my best friend was on third base, and we kind of, um, you know, we're having fun with this whole thing. I also got a couple hits, one of which was a home run. So after the game, I'm pretty proud of myself. And my dad, you know, watched the game. He never says a word. He's not coaching. He's just in the stands. We get in the car, and I'm thinking, like, hey, this is going to be a good one. We're going to go get ice cream, and I'm, I'm a hero. He looks at me, and he goes, if you ever do that again, you will never play baseball ever again. And I go, whoa, whoa, Dad, what did I do? And he goes, you disrespected the other team. You were smiling when you struck him out. You were a total jerk, and that does not work, and you will never play this game again. And honestly, that stuck with me forever, just in terms of how you treat People, um, whatever the situation, treat them as you want to be treated to have absolute respect. If you hit a home run, you know, no home run trot, just kind of act like you've been there before. And that's stuck with me forever.
0: Now, your dad was a teacher, and I understand you you wanted to be a teacher for a while. What made you go the route of business?
1: So when I graduated from college, I had three jobs, um, two of which were coaching and teaching, and one of which was trading commodities in Minneapolis. And I couldn't decide what I was going to do, and I was avoiding it. And I had a friend in the, in the room with me, and the phone was ringing. You know, it was like back before cell phones, and um, way before cell phones. And, um, and I wouldn't pick it up. And he goes, what are you doing? And I go, well, it's one of three people, and I don't know what my answer is. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I go, well, I got a job teaching in California. I got a job teaching on the East Coast, and I got a job trading commodities in Minneapolis. And he said, well, that's easy. He said, you know you're going to teach and coach at some point you should go do business because you've never seen it. And uh, it'll be much easier to go from business to teaching than teaching to business. And I said, ah, that makes all the sense in the world. And I woke up 40 years later, running a bank, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. But you've been doing a lot of coaching and teaching in all those roles. You know
1: what? And, and that's my dad and me too, is, you know, that's, he shows up every day in terms of how I treat people, but how I get to decisions and get people there. And it's, he was a very Socratic teacher. He kind of led you to the answer, and therefore you own that answer as opposed to just memorizing it. And uh, and that's what I think is learning. He, he, uh, you know, I learned to learn from him.
0: You know, Seth, this has been so much fun, and, and we've covered a lot of areas, but I want to have a little bit more fun with you here. Let's have a lightning round of Q&A, okay? What three words best describe you?
1: Huh. Uh, well, I, I think... I think I'm really grateful, which sort of leads to my happy, I think. Um, sort of the same thought. I, I hope people think I'm thoughtful and, and balanced. Um, I think that's really important to me, that, that, I'm, that I'm balanced and come into a conversation open. Um, and then I think that maybe the little sneaky one on me is, I, I think people are surprised with how gritty I am. I don't give up easily.
0: <laughs> what would be your biggest pet peeve?
1: Biggest pet peeve, uh, rudeness.
0: If you could change places with one person for a day, who would it be and why? Uh,
1: that's a great one. Um, well, maybe my 18-year-old self, but uh, <laughs> or, you, or you, but uh, barring that, um, I think Churchill. I think, you know, and the reason for that is that I think he was the greatest display of leadership in the last 150 years. I mean, it, it was really his will to change the direction of the, of the world. And I, I think it was really him.
0: Yeah. And what's something about you that few people would know? That I think I got a novel
1: in me somewhere. <laughs>
0: and, and do you have any hidden talents? Is maybe it's writing?
1: Uh, yeah, hopefully they're not. That's not totally hidden. I, I, you know, you have to have talent in order to have one hidden, don't you? <laughs> that's true. Uh, you know what? I'm a I'm a I'm a good swimmer. I'm actually a very good swimmer. <laughs> Who would be your favorite golfer? Oh, that's easy. That's my son, Clancy. You know, he's not famous yet, but uh, the journey and watching it from a little kid and how much he cares and how much this game beats him up and how he comes back for more and uh, how hard he's trying to make a living out of it. It's um, it's really, it, it makes me proud.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and you caddied for him. What did you learn from that experiences? You know, as he was at Wake Forest, and could you guys stay happy together?
1: <laughs> yeah, no. It uh, we had a great time, and uh, it, it's the most fun I've ever had. And I took a summer off and and uh, and travel with him as he was playing the really high end of the amateur ranks. And and I think the first thing you do is you, you know you got to learn to swallow your whistle, right? Because it's his game; it's not my game. And I, I've always been pretty good at that but you know i'll tell you a quick story i might explain it better when he was going to go to his first q school and he he said dad will you caddy for me and i said Are you sure like i want you this is real like i want you to have the best chance and he goes no i really do want you i think you'd give me my best chance and i go well that's great i'm flattered And he goes but i'm in charge like i'm the boss and i go like i get that and i said so here's the rules i'll uh, i'll carry your bag i'll keep up I'll you know, sort of shut up and I'll, I'll give you every yardage and um, I won't give a club unless you ask and I'll, on the greens, I'll read every putt, but I won't say a word unless you ask. And so you're in charge and until you're a jerk and then I'm your dad.
0: <laughs> That's a good one. I like that. And, and recently Seth, you, you've remarried and you have a wonderful wife, Jane, that you mentioned a little bit earlier. You know, how do you handle all the business challenges that you have now and just the the, the, the workload that you have? How do you make it work?
1: I don't know. You know, you, I think the, the, one of the great things that we all have to learn early in life is capacity, right? And, you know, you have an enormous amount of it and I I admire that. If you think about a lot of the people that you admire, it's people that take things on. So I I hope I have a bit of that. But um, I love it. I'm so lucky. I, I'm much better if I have 10, 20 things going on than if I have one, I kind of procrastinate. If I have 20, I get them all done. But I think the important, you know, the Important thing, I think, in terms of being a parent, which is our only job that really matters, right, is I try to really be in the moment wherever I am. So if I'm, you know, if I'm at work, like, that's what I'm doing. Um, If I'm at dinner, I'm at dinner, the phone's away. Um, You know, I don't don't bring my work home very much. People, they ask me how I'm doing and I give very, you know, one word answers. I I don't, I, I try to, you know, whomever I'm with, I try to make, that person, you know, honestly, I'm not trying to pretend is the most important person on the planet at at that moment, right? Um, And I also would say that, you know, as a leader, I've always kind of emphasized that it's family first. And so, you know, if somebody, one of my coworkers has a family issue, we're going to get by without you, whether that's an hour or a day or a week or a month or whatever it is like, you know, come back when you're ready, but that's the most important thing. And so if my, one of my kids calls me at work, I, I, I might not pick them up the first time i from a board meeting, but if they call twice, I'm, I'm excusing myself from the board meeting.
0: Well, I can attest that I've seen you do that and you're very good at it, you know, and, and I want to wrap this up, Seth, with two, two quick final questions. Uh, Number one, what would be the single most important traits you look for in people you hire?
1: That's, it's character, right? Um, absolutely character. You can teach a lot of other things. Um, I think and part of that character is being a team player. Um, you know, and, and you, you, look, you, know, you obviously have to be smart enough, but um, I, I'd much rather have you have a soul than a, than a, than a brain.
0: <laughs> and what would be three bits of advice you would give to aspiring leaders?
1: Uh, I'd say you know life is a team sport, and um, and your people are your brand. You got to create trust, but you got to trust, you got to empower, um, and so make sure that that is a team. It, you know, it might be a baseball team where you got different people playing different positions, but it's a team. Um, I think you know, listen more than you talk. Um, a thing that I talked about in terms of building a consensus. Um, I think, you know, having everyone own the decision. So that's an important characteristic. I think people, as they go through the ranks, want to sort of be the smartest person in the room. And I think the questions you ask are often much more important than the speeches that you make. Um, And then I, I can't not say my golden rule, which is no jerks allowed. Jerks just kind of suck the energy out of room. We know what they mean. They take a lot of forms. I'm not saying there's one form of it. By the way, if you have the occasional public execution um, of one, uh, you know, people stand up and notice and they realize that, you know, this is real and, you know, they mean what they say. And I, I think living who you are and, and uh, showing that every day is, is what being a leader is. Um, and it's, you know, every, every second of every day.
0: Seth, I want to thank you so much. You're you're a great friend, and I appreciate all you're doing for others. And you're one heck of a leader. And thanks for sharing your wisdom.
1: Well, I wish I I wish I I wish I was wise, but I really enjoyed the conversation, and um, and I'm flattered you've had quite a lineup. And to uh, add my list, I'm going to put it on my resume.
0: Well, I had to get a wise guy on the show. All right, great. Thank you very much, buddy. Thank you very much. Well, if you know me, you know I love my golf. And I really feel good that golf is in good hands with Seth Waugh. But let's think about what we can learn from our conversation with Seth. When Seth took over as CEO of the PGA of America, the first job that he had to do was to improve communications and trust between the headquarters and the members, the PGA professionals. His intent was to create a community where each person's character builds a team culture and an atmosphere of what he calls happiness. And I love that because, you know, when people are happy, they just tend to do good things. He asked all kinds of questions and spent time with his team members, employees, and clients, and he got to know them and how they worked. And only after digging in deep did Seth make the tough decisions, the right decisions that leaders have to make. But, you know, sometimes as leaders, we tend to get so caught up in the big picture stuff that we just plain forget to connect with what's really happening where it really matters at all levels in the organization. So this week, as part of your weekly personal development plan, here's what I want you to do. I want you to spend time with every level of your organization. I want you to talk to customers, listen in on sales calls, Follow Seth's example by listening and asking questions. It just may give you a whole new perspective on the problems you need to solve. And believe me, your team is gonna love you for it. So do you wanna know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders spend time with all levels of their organization. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world.